I sometimes try to think about what it would be like to be on a marketing team that like you don't have access to data to like make decisions. And I, it scares me mostly because I think I just feel so lost. I think I, I beat looker to shit every day. It helps really f us make decisions from everything in the marketing funnel, from understanding what ad creative is working all the way through understanding like where people are dropping off. Hey, it's Dan McGaw here. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of McGaw.io, the leading tech stack management firm. Each week, I speak to executives to find out exactly how they're using their stack to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. This week, Julia Porter, VP of Marketing at RoboKiller, a mobile app that blocks spam calls and telemarketers. Julia will share her mobile stack secrets to help you grow your business. And interestingly enough, Julia also worked at HubSpot as a customer success manager prior to joining RoboKiller, so she's deep into the MarTech world. Julia is all about mobile, though. I just feel like the MarTech world like gives mobile no love. In this episode, we're going to dive into mobile and learn all about the stack that's driving revenue at RoboKiller. We'll talk about unique challenges with a mobile tech stack and how some things like attribution are actually easier. Julia's got so much cool stuff going on with her stack and is leveraging tools like AppsFlyer, LeanPlum, and even her personal favorite, Looker. We'll dive deeper into how she's using all of those tools in our conversation. I am a VP of marketing at RoboKiller. Started here in 2017. When I first started, I was actually our first marketer. And uh, back in late 2018, we were actually acquired by IAC. So since then, I have been uh, scaling the crap out of this product and trying to achieve a mass US takeover for spam call protection uh, through RoboKiller. So that's the goal. Um, so we're really focused on UA, growth, everything mobile marketing. I love it. Now, what is RoboKiller? I know you said you got acquired by AAC, but what, what is the premise of RoboKiller? RoboKiller is the best spam call blocker app available, and hopefully that resonates with everyone because I have not met anyone who has never gotten a spam call. RoboKiller takes a pretty unique technological approach to blocking spam calls. We use AI and machine learning, and that makes us 99% effective. Uh, no other competitors really come close to that effectiveness level. In addition to that, RoboKiller has a hilarious feature called AnswerBots. We intercept your spam calls and mess with telemarketers, and you get to listen to that. Um, which is a ridiculous part of my job, but makes it very fun. Hold on, wait a second. I want to hear this again. Because I get at least 30 spam calls a day. I would love to make their life just a little bit more worse for annoying me as much as they do. Now you have, go back to this thing, you have a way that you can like, your your tool talks to them? Yes. Uh, so if you want, you can set RoboKiller up to intercept your spam calls, not only just block them. When we intercept your calls, we uh, deliver an answer bot that gets on the phone in your place. The scripts are hilarious. We have anything from an iced tea answer bot to like every politician there ever was. And uh, they just unleash hell on these uh, robocallers that, to your point, I feel bad for them sometimes, but they are most of the time trying to steal from you. So it is a nice little taste of uh, poetic justice for sure. You're about to hear the thinking behind a robocaller ambush. Hello. Thank you for calling. How can I help you? Answer bots. Answer bots are robots of our own that answer the calls that we block and talk back to the spammers. You caught me at work. Um, I'm actually sitting in my squad car at the moment. I'm actually out on the water right now on one of my canoes. The caller is talking to a recorded voice. We're just at a casino, but I, as long as you can hear me. All right, also I can hear you perfectly fine. That's right, the human robocaller is talking to an answer bot. Legend never did. 
I totally would agree with you. It is great poetic justice. And, and at times I do feel bad because I do get plenty of calls. And I try to have as much fun as I can with the spammers. Every once in a while I give them a hard time. But I want to learn a little bit more about you. So if I'm not mistaken, before you were at RoboKiller, you were at HubSpot. So like you actually are like in MarTech. Yes, yes. I was just a baby when I started at HubSpot. I was on their customer success team, had just graduated and uh, you know needed somewhere to start and had a bunch of clients on ranging from enterprise to small business. And then you know every time I was getting off the phone with them, I just really wanted to be on the other side doing and then came across RoboKiller and here we are. Now, if I'm not mistaken, there's an interesting story about why you were so passionate about RoboKiller though. That's correct, yes. So I was actually, when I was at HubSpot, I was getting my master's degree at night, which was insane, uh, do not recommend. And I was kind of planning to make that transition, like I said, out of HubSpot at some point, but once I had graduated, uh, but a recruiter had reached out to me and the night before uh, my mom had fallen victim to a tech support scam. And so I, you know, was at home trying to help her like cancel credit cards and like deal with all that stuff. So of course, uh, when someone told me about RoboKiller's mission, the app was uh, just launching at the time back in 2017. And so they were like, hey, you know, there's this company, RoboKiller, they're on a mission to really stop spam calls. Like, what do you think? And I was like, sign me up. So definitely a good mission. No, I, I, everything worked out with your mom okay? Yeah, yeah. It, we were, le- we responded quickly and I think we were, we were able to not see any damage, but unfortunately some people aren't as lucky. What are, what are your top three KPIs, right? If I went and talked to your boss, what would they say about your KPIs? So definitely focus on top line growth. Obviously revenue is a big one, uh, but we do also really focus on profitability within that. You know, IC and uh, RoboKiller is, is not just fo- one of those uh, companies that's focusing on uh, scaling and not worrying about the margins. Um, so, you know, we do have restrictions and, and focuses and targets around that. Um, and then we also really look at retention rates, right? You know, we do all this work to acquire people um, on the marketing front. It, it's always disappointing to see them churning out the back. So right now we're really focused on uh, tightening up some of our measurement around retention, around churn, just to make sure that the people that were, like I said, working so hard to bring in the door, you know, end up sticking around. Where are you measuring CAC? Like, I mean, how are you measuring CAC altogether? Is it in a tool? Yes. So we use a mobile measurement provider. We use Adjust. We've been back and forth through a number. Of, we were using AppsFlyer actually before we were acquired, and then uh, just our parent company was using Adjust at the time, so it made more sense to transition. Obviously, in the last 12 months, MMPs have gone through a little bit of a transformation with uh, the mobile privacy landscape changing, but we still uh, you know, have been able to make just Adjust work for us. So we're getting all of our attributions still through that mobile measurement provider. We do also look at like our advertising platforms and what they're saying in terms of the installs and the conversions that we're generating through that as well. But we use Adjust as our source of truth to really measure like attributed uh, acquisitions and just overall performance as well. Now, because you used to work with the web and now you're in mobile, I mean, it's a very different world, right? Mobile and web is completely different. But the one thing I will say, because I mean, I used to own a mobile app company, is that interestingly enough, mobile attribution is much easier to do. Marketing attribution is much easier for mobile than it is for the web. Would you agree with that? It just makes it that much easier? 100%. I've actually been reminded of that recently since we've started to build out our enterprise marketing team and just our marketing efforts. I absolutely hate web attribution. Uh, I've always hated Google Analytics with like a burning, fiery passion. Um, And we have been, to your point, been spoiled on mobile because, you know, it's been great to have just like one central tool that is your source of truth for what you're doing from a conversion standpoint and where you're getting those conversions. I would prefer never going back to web if I had the option, but, uh, you know, that's not the case, obviously, with RoboKiller. So that has been a challenge, honestly, recently for us. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting when I talk to a lot of marketing teams that are on web and they, they're like, oh, we're rolling out a mobile app and we're so scared. I'm like, honestly, it's actually easier on a mobile app because there's less things. Um, web is a little bit more complicated. Um, don't get me wrong, choose your poison uh, or choose your hard might be the easiest way to say that. Let me explain the difference between these two poisons. Web attribution is often done using what's called UTM parameters. A UTM parameter is a short piece of code you can add to the end of your links. They make it easier to track the traffic coming from an email, social media posts, or ad campaigns. UTMs are literally the most common method of tracking on the web, and most of you listening have the dreaded UTM spreadsheet. And if you're interested in killing the UTM sheet, check out UTM.io, the leader in campaign link management. UTM parameters don't work the same on mobile. For example, if a user clicked a URL for the RoboKiller app and it contained UTM parameters, it would take them to the App Store and those UTMs would be saved only in the Apple or Android stores. And might I add, these app stores don't provide a good method for extracting this attribution data and seeing how each customer converts. This is what causes many marketers to call the App Store a walled garden or closed ecosystem where data isn't shared across platforms. However, Mobile attribution providers like AppsFlyer or Adjust can track which marketing channel or campaigns are responsible for driving your mobile app installs and how those installs turn into revenue. These platforms allow you to still use UTMs to track your attribution just like you would on the web, but by using a mobile attribution provider, you can easily see the full customer lifecycle. The big difference that makes mobile attribution easier is the limited number of sessions it takes to get a download. Unlike the web where users visit dozens or hundreds of times before converting, a mobile app typically has only a couple of touches before someone installs the app, making the attribution tracking much easier to quantify. These tools also offer what's called deep linking. These are universal tracking links that reduce friction in the user's experience by sending them directly to the place where they need to be within an app upon install. These deep links in many cases also double as your attributes tracking links as well. Now back to Julia. Now with retention, are you tracking retention in adjust or is there another way that you're tracking your retention and cohort analysis? Yeah, so the app stores are really kind of truly our source of truth, right? So, you know, the Google Play and uh, App Store Connect from Apple, you know, ultimately are what pays us. So uh, we do get a lot of our subscription data or are validating a lot of our subscription data that we're seeing in uh, Adjust against that. And then certainly Adjust has its kind of a, a different definitions of certain things. I think a, a good one to just point to is... Um, the app stores define like what an app install is a little bit differently than what Adjust would, uh, largely based on like if someone's re-downloading your app versus downloading for the first time. So sometimes those numbers don't totally line up. But in terms of like payments, we're really mostly validating through the app stores. So Adjust is really kind of up to the point where you know we do look at all of our transactions through Adjust, and you know it's configured properly in the way to do so. Um, but actually, I think a lot of our retention curves are actually based on what we see in the app stores from like recurring purchases. Because because again, like that's just the source of truth for us. And then we're aggregating all of that information and kind of merging adjusting the stores together and uh, up to our, my favorite tool, which is Looker. Um, so all of that kind of gets merged together in terms of like our LTV definitions, our retention curves, like all of those supporting metrics. And I think I, I beat Looker to shit every day, just keeping track of all of those. So yeah. I love Looker. I, I love Looker. I sometimes try to think about what it would be like to be on a marketing team that like you don't have access to data to like make decisions. And I, it scares me 
mostly because I think I just feel so lost. It helps really f- us make decisions from everything in the marketing funnel, from understanding what ad creative is working all the way through understanding like where people are dropping off. What strategies are you using today? Like what is the big thing you're proud of in regards to acquiring users? Like what strategy are you using there? Honestly, diversification. So when we first started uh, back in 2018 after the acquisition, you know, we just got right on digital at the time. There was uh, these privacy restrictions with Apple didn't exist. It was the Wild West on mobile, uh, particularly because of the data that was being uh, used for uh, by advertising networks. Um, and so it was super easy to scale up based on like, you know, we were a bootstrap company beforehand and, uh, you know, had to keep, you know, marketing uh, spend within a specific range, right, to financially make sense for the business. Obviously, acquisition after the acquisition, we were dealing with like a lot more funds and a lot more freedom. So scaling up digital was just like the easiest way to move metrics quickly from a a scale and growth standpoint. But I think, you know, again, because we are so US only focused and international really hasn't been, I think, as much of a priority for us, we've really had to focus on channel diversification. So I think we've kind of like reached a point in terms of, like I said, trying to do UA profitably, where on digital, you know, your kind of core networks of Facebook, Google, you know, all of those, you know, we're continuing to kind of scale those through, you know, ongoing optimizations, but they've, they haven't reached maturity per se, but they're kind of like at a norm now that from pre-acquisition that are kind of here to stay. So since then, in the last 12 months, we've really been focusing on uh, expansion really to like offline channels. Um, Linear TV for us has actually been a huge channel, which has been really interesting. I don't know if you remember this, but peak quarantine levels back in 2020, linear TV uh, CPM rates, uh, mostly for remnant inventory, reached like an all-time low. And it just made the barrier to entry for apps, uh, consumer apps to jump in. And, and we really took advantage of that. And it's been a great channel since. We're also doing a bunch of stuff with uh, DSPs and third-party advertising networks. So like ads and other mobile apps. And since then have kind of been able to just grow like a bigger channel base, which I think has been really helpful with the more recent Apple privacy changes because impression inventory on mobile is uh, heating up and uh, harder to come by. So just having more profitable channels in our mix uh, has really helped us expand. Is there any one channel outside of linear TV that really surprised you in its its effectiveness? Direct mail. We tried it. I threw really? I came out. I, I wanted to try it really bad. I threw it out to our boss to see if he'd be interested. Particularly, I think I mentioned this, but people above the age of 65 are, are really targeted and impacted by spam calls and spammers uh, in an unfair proportion. You know, we did a bunch of analysis on uh, the age ranges that our digital impressions were were reaching and just found that through, you know, Facebook and stuff and Google, and we weren't reaching as many of those people as I think we would have wanted to. Um, so I was like, what if we just try like direct mail? We can target, you know, older uh, households. And it did really well, which was, was fun and interesting. I haven't tested, we haven't retested yet since uh, COVID restrictions have come up. So I, I am curious to see how it'll perform once people are like back in the world and not everyone's not just at home, like reading every piece of mail they get. Uh, but that was a fun, uh, more recent channel that we had a good time working with. I love it. And honestly, I would, just from experience, continue to use direct mail. It's, <laughs> okay. it's actually entertainingly cheap. I have a client who sends a couple million pieces a month. We've run their attribution. So direct mail can definitely be a really, really good channel. Most people don't realize it. It's funny because like we're all in tech, so we're like, hey, let's stick with the computers. Let's do all these stuff. But because everybody is now trying to be tech or on digital, everything that was like good for advertising in the 80s and 90s is now really cheap. So like even radio ads, have you done any radio ads yet? 
We have done radio. I've heard uh, from from just the mobile industry. I've heard kind of a mixed bag of results there. Most of the, I think some of it's just because like if you hear a radio ad, I know a lot of people text and drive when they shouldn't. I don't know that I've ever downloaded an app in, while driving. Uh, so you know, I think that's the only time I ever listened to the radio. So it just didn't seem like super intuitive to us. We've tried it and uh, have kind of come to that conclusion through the results that we've seen. But we also haven't really kind of tried it at scale, so I, it's on the back burner. I'm, it's not. I'm not a no on it yet, but uh, I think we have funner channels like direct mail that we're focusing on. You know who listens to the radio? Old people. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. I'm giving totally hard time. You've got to find the right station. No, I'm just giving you a hard time. It may seem wrong in a show about tech stacks for me to sing the praises of things like radio, TV, or direct mail. But there are some great reasons that marketers might want to look at some of these legacy or seemingly outdated forms of advertising. For one, these routes are cheap. The barrier to entry on these types of campaigns can be shockingly low, so there isn't too much of an initial investment to give it a try. It can also have an extremely high return on your investment. You just have to change your strategy to take into account the different type of buying cycle. Depending on who your target audience is, like old people, you might have more success running a radio ad or sending them a flyer in the mail rather than targeting them with ads on Google or TikTok. You need to choose the best channel to get your message to your audience. And in reality, most of us have banner blindness and don't even see the ads on the web. But when you get a direct mail that speaks to your interest, you might be less likely to throw it away and come back to it later. Despite what many people think, direct mail can be tracked. There are quite a few strategies that enable you to track this from individual promo codes to vanity URLs that have the UTMs baked in for tracking. When thinking about things like radio, you have to remember it is not a direct response advertising channel. In many cases, people are driving and they can't go to your website immediately. However, if they hear your ad enough times, they won't be able to forget you exist. But enough about these legacy marketing channels and direct mail for now, let's get back to Julia. What is your strategy to keep people around outside of a good product, right? Yes. I'd say we have two teams that are really focused on that here. Well, three, to your point, on the product side. So, you know, we have a great product team. They're always focused on improving the product experience. Um, We work very closely with them to do that. The two teams on the marketing side that really focus on that are our growth team. And then to my second point on the other team that's really focused on that is like our retention and CRM team. We use Lean Plum, which is a competitor of Braze. Um, they're basically like a HubSpot for uh, mobile apps. They have you know a bunch of reporting and analytics themselves. They're like basically a database meets uh, you know a campaign composer CRM tool. So what we use Lean Plum for is um, connecting those that user behavior and behavioral analysis to really drive action through you know push messages, um, email marketing, and and just trying to get understand what people are doing and what they aren't doing that is leading to certain uh, levels of retention. Um, and then just trying to talk to users and, and get them to really, A, understand what they need to do in order to kind of experience value, but then also what we need them to do in order to retain well. Now, the, you had mentioned the growth team, of course, is, uh, they're focused considerably on retaining the users. You have a separate team, CRM. The CRM team is using a lot more lean plum, it sounds like. What's the growth team doing to run experiments? Are they using a lean plum or do you have another experimentation program? We do use the A-B testing through lean plum. And we actually have, also have an internal tool that we've built that just helps us better calculate like LTVs from certain test variants. So the two of those work hand in hand for our A-B testing and uh, A-B testing analysis. 
What are the smaller tools that you're using, right, that we may not be familiar with? I am obsessed with Miro. Have you ever heard of Miro? Oh my gosh, have I heard of Miro. I love it. I like crash my computer on it every single day. Um, Miro has been uh, an interesting kind of brain mapping tool for us, especially with COVID and transitioning to, you know, I've been remote at uh, RoboKiller throughout my career here, uh, but, you know, so many more of us have gone remote uh, since COVID, obviously. And so it's a lot harder to kind of share ideas. And uh, Miro has been an amazing tool for like, a, from a creative standpoint, obviously for like the advertising team too, but also for the UX team. Um, and so it's been a great way to kind of, uh, meet across a number of different teams and and get people kind of understanding, you know, especially with growth too. It's such an easy place to kind of point out certain areas of the product experience that might be driving, you know, retention uh, declines or conversion rate drop off rather than just trying to, you know, explain it over a Zoom call. So that's been huge for us just from a moving faster standpoint. So Miro, Zoom, I'm going to assume you're on Slack, right? Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you can't say, obviously, you, I cannot tell you the number of people that I talked to and they're like, we're not allowed to use Slack. We're on Microsoft Teams. So, and I always just feel so bad. That's tra- that's a real tragedy. Yeah. Complete garbage. I'm going to shout out to our, uh, our IT team here. We did uh, move from Gmail to Outlook two years ago and I haven't gotten over it. I'm, it was, I almost quit. Hold on. Wait a second. You're, you're using Outlook? Yeah. I think we have to end the interview. I know. We, you sh- you I should. I can't. Can't be embarrassed like this. I know. I'm sorry. Honestly, you know, it's funny because in the interview process with people, uh, one of the things that comes up is, of course, like, what are the tools that you're most used to working with? And whenever people say Outlook or we get an application with Hotmail on it, we're always like, I'm not sure if this is going to work. So I hate to say it, but it's true. Who is using Hotmail professionally? Well, they're using it personally when they apply for a job. So, Uh, (laughs) but either way, Hotmail is Outlook now. Either way, I'm moving on. I digress. I read this amazing article by you. And I just want to say, if everybody out there listening can go just Google Julia's name, which is spelled with a G, you can look it up later. She's this amazing article about how to have a mobile stack and like the things you need to run. What was that article called? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was called How to Scale Your Mobile Tech Stack. It was a while ago. The four must-haves for your mobile tech stack, I think, is what the stacking your tech stack for mobile app growth. What is this all about? Like, do you, can you talk a little bit about the, how you stack this? Yeah. So uh, when I joined RoboKiller, it was a shit show in a fun way. And, <laughs> okay. Just making sure. <laughs> yeah. It was a blank slate, honestly. And I, like I said, I actually wasn't coming from a mobile background, which was kind of another layer of that fun challenge. I wrote that article because I really felt like a mobile really doesn't get a lot of love in like the Martech world. I feel like I, you know, obviously coming from HubSpot, I kind of knew all of the like Martech SaaS tools and like, you know, all the podcasts about them and the blogs. And I never saw anything about mobile. And so, you know, and I made that transition. I was like, nobody's talking about mobile. And it frankly it made it more challenging in terms of kind of figuring out what we needed. And, you know, I think we were able to still move, you know, as quickly as possible. And I think, you know, we were able to drive outcomes, but it was more challenging than I was expecting. And so I wanted to kind of bring an approach that I think had a, had we been able to do it over again, that I probably would have taken uh, myself for uh, just to leave a legacy for anyone else who might be making that like weird transition from HubSpot to mobile. I don't know if anyone else has, but I'd love to hear if they did. Tons of people have, tons of people have. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, really a big part of that too was the learnings about just the state of our databases and how challenging that made uh, building everything on top of that, which I think was kind of one of the primary points. The way I like to describe it is like, 
kind of that's that saying it's like if you don't love yourself like no one can love you or whatever that saying is it's kind of like if your database is shit then you can't like build a great like tech stack over it garbage in is garbage out baby yes exactly um or you can build lean plum over it and deal with it at some other time which we're kind of trying to piecemeal still and then lastly i think the other thing too that i i think um I wanted to get across was just like no bullshit. I think sometimes there's a lot of fluff in like MarTech kind of thought leadership where everything's just like so much better than it actually seems. And it's, you know, you actually go to implement stuff and you're like, there's no way that this company is doing that. You know what I mean? So I uh, wanted to bring like a realistic approach to uh, approaching a tech stack as well. You did a good job. I think the article is great. And for everybody listening, I would highly recommend checking out the article. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. You know, with somebody who came from web and then went mobile, I've done it as well. I actually, unfortunately, I owned the company and I was not the best at it, so I went out of business, but that's not totally my fault, whatever. You've had to make some huge mistakes, right? You had to have like blown something up, shut the app down for a day. Like, what is the big failure that you made in the transition from web to mobile that you're like, ah, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that? Oh my God, my team is going to kill me. So uh, one big piece of RoboKiller's growth, uh, really right up to our acquisition, was actually PR. When RoboKiller launched, uh, the media was really talking about robocalls because I think it was just something that everyone agreed that we all hated. Uh, and the political climate and everything else is pretty polarized these days. So I think it was just you know a topic of interest for everyone. With that, we were able to really leverage PR basically as a user acquisition channel for us, where we were producing content marketing around what we, our own internal statistical estimates of how many spam calls we thought US uh, smartphone owners were, were receiving each month. Um, and that got press pickup because we were able to kind of provide some data that is otherwise not accessible to uh, everyone in the US. We started really with like a grassroots approach where we reached out to a lot of uh, local uh, consumer advocate reporters where we would kind of go out, they, you know, I'm sure you've probably seen this on the local news where it's like the segments of like, don't waste your money and like, you know, those types of reporters. So we went out to them and we kind of pitched the data that we had and obviously the tips to keep people protected from spam calls. And uh, that did well. What that ended up kind of building up to was a feature by uh, NBC Nightly News. Robocall scammers hitting so many of us at once, day and night. More than 30 billion robocalls last year alone. So how easy is it for them? We've asked cybersecurity expert Ellie Finkelman to show us. But we, uh, similar to, uh, I don't know if you've we're following this similar to the Coinbase fiasco uh, during the Super Bowl, did not up our bandwidth enough and the app crashed basically instantaneously. I think we got like 200,000 installs in like 10 minutes and then we kind of shut off after that. So that was definitely a, an interesting one for sure. It was kind of fun because it was like a hall of hands on deck. Like, you know, everyone, this like our CEO and everyone was like on social media trying to answer people, telling them that we'd be back online. But I think that kind of stands out to me as a, a big fuck up for sure. But it, you have to say, I did such a good job that I drove so much demand. I took it all down. And like, I'm sorry, as a marketer, that is one of the most prideful things. Like I did so much that we took it down. So you did a good job. Yeah. I'm proud of that. Our team did. Our team did for sure. But yeah, I can't take all the credit. Yeah. Well, your team did a good job. Uh, and I think that's super hysterical. We've been there. I mean, it happened to Coinbase. It's happened to me before in more than one occasion. Load testing is a thing. I can't remember who the company is, but Ping, I think, does it as well. Um, but <laughs> load testing is really important. I learned that lesson the hard way too. 
Load testing allows you to avoid this problem the RoboKiller team experienced when their website went down. Load testing allows you to simulate how your app or website would perform when hundreds, thousands, or millions of users visit it. The last thing you want is for millions of customers to come rushing to your product and get an error message. It's truly painful to think of the lost revenue in this situation, and it's just awful to know that you've absolutely crushed your campaign but are unable to reap any of the rewards. Back in February 2022, cryptocurrency company Coinbase experienced a massive crash after they released a Super Bowl ad containing only a QR code. Were you one of those people chasing a QR code around your TV screen during the Super Bowl, even getting down on your knees? Basically, the ad was just 60 seconds of this QR code bouncing around on the screen, and naturally, when the Super Bowl viewers used it, it caused a huge surge in traffic. They had more than 20 million hits on their landing page in one minute. That is six times more than what they had originally anticipated. There are many tools out there that can help you do load testing to avoid these types of fiascos. A few are Ping, Apache, and Load Runner. And whichever one you choose, make sure you do your testing before your huge campaign goes live. And I'll have some of these folks back on the show so they can talk about how their product helps with load testing to prevent your campaigns from going down. Now let's get back to Julia. What's next though? Like what is the next tool you're considering? Are you currently looking at getting anything else added? We are opening the wide world of B2B MarTech everything, which has been fun. We actually just signed on with HubSpot. You must be uh, so B2B. proud. I'm so <laughs> proud. Finally, only took me five years. <laughs> That's been interesting to kind of just like dust off the cobwebs of everything uh, HubSpot. So we're, we're really focused on building out all of the like HubSpot CRM and then kind of getting ready for like the marketing side of that. We've actually mostly been focusing on HubSpot sales right now, which I actually, right when I left HubSpot, that was really when when HubSpot sales was kind of taking off. And I, I really like those products. Um, I just think that they're really designed to solve user pain points very well. Whenever I use them, I'm like, this solves a need. Like I have that like compelling feeling. So I just, I don't know, that's... It's done very well, and that's like a nice feeling to use as a, a professional. So right now we're getting kind of HubSpot sales set up actually really to be kind of like our MMP kind of. Like we we need to be able to use HubSpot to define like enterprise LTVs. When you think about like, okay, so you're going through this process, you need to buy some B2B tools, you're looking at HubSpot, right? Or let's say you're looking at something else. Like you had to compare HubSpot to Pardot, I don't know. When you think about choosing that software, what recommendations would you give to others about how they can choose new tools for their stacks or the way they should go about the process? I think I would start by saying, like, don't rush into it. There's been so many times that I've just wanted to, like, blast, like... As a marketer, you're so busy. I don't want to talk to like a bunch of eight, like vendors and get a bunch of proposals. Like the knee jerk desire to want to just kind of like blast through something and not and just say like, oh, you know, everyone uses HubSpot, so I'm just going to use HubSpot. You know what I mean? And not really think through all of the use cases is something that uh, I had run into quite a bit when building our consumer tech stack. So just taking your time and like really first just understanding what what you need is the first kind of step in that process. So for example, I think like with HubSpot for what we were looking at for enterprise, you know, I was familiar obviously with like 
HubSpot forms and like HubSpot API. And we really sat down and we're like, okay, what, what don't we have that we're going to need from a CRM and being able to kind of pull in data out of HubSpot so that we could over time define a lifetime value based on how we were tracking, you know, deal stages, right. uh, was a big one for us. And so some of that was just familiarity, but you know, that had us leading towards HubSpot, but some of that was just like really sitting down and saying, okay, what do we actually need rather than just kind of saying like, Oh, I'm going to look at like, Pardot, because like that checks a box, if that makes sense. So really trying to go in with like getting somewhat organized, I think is kind of the first step. And then, you know, using that information to really go through like the sales engineer process of that specifically, where if you go into a conversation with, you know, a HubSpot, with a Pardot, knowing what you need, it's way easier then to like get as a next step of the kind of process for scoping to like get on the phone, get your engineers on the phone with a sales engineer and like solve a lot of the problems that you would otherwise be kind of solving after you brought on a marketing automation platform um, that will just end up slowing you down. So I think trying to just go in with a vision, I think is a little bit better than just kind of saying like, oh, well, you know, on G2 Crowd, like this software gets like the best reviews. So I'm going that way. So yeah. Worst way to buy software is most reviews on G2 Crowd. Just want to say that because they're fake. They're so fake. I hate it. Sorry. Softwarereviews.com as well. I don't know why I'm singing, but we're going to move on. So this is great feedback in regards to the recommendations that you would give people. Don't rush. Make sure you do your needs assessment. Be thorough in the solutions engineering process, which I think is a really great tip in the fact of like, when you're in the solutions engineering phase of the sales process, actually have your use cases because they're going to let you know whether they work. Um, And then you'll get a jump start. So when you do buy the contract, you'll actually be able to run. So I think that's good. Well, this, this has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you being able to come on. You've given me, you've taught me a bunch of stuff, which is amazing. And uh, I know the audience is super thankful. So thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Julia was such a great guest. Let's recap some of the awesome tools she's using to drive revenue at RoboKiller. And I highly recommend you check out her article in the show notes, Sacking Your Tech Stack for Mobile App Growth. First thing that you'll need, according to Julia, is a solid database. This means developing a data taxonomy, addressing your database structure, and prioritizing data integrity. You'll want to own this and make sure that every team across your business is able to understand and use this database. And when I say database, I'm referring to your data warehouse, your customer database, or any tool where you store your customer data. Like I said earlier, garbage in means garbage out. The second thing you'll need is a mobile measurement partner like AppsFlyer or Adjust. These allow Julia and her team to keep track of the mobile marketing attribution, deep linking, and fraud protection. Lean Plum is what Julia is using for her mobile-first marketing automation platform, and this allows her to automate email, push notification, and even run A-B tests. It's an integral part for developing her customer acquisition and retention initiatives. Last but not least is Looker, Julia's favorite data visualization tool. The ability to centralize data and keep KPIs in one location that is accessible to all of the stakeholders can not only help improve performance management, but increase buy-in on your growth strategy across the entire organization. Now that's it for today, and you can join me each week on The Stack. Because you're interested in this podcast, naturally the next step is to get a free copy of my book, Build Cool Shit, by visiting buildcoolshit.com. And if you want to cut the sheet and improve your UTMs and channel attribution, make sure you check out utm.io as well. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Hold up. 